0: Don Macholtz, and you're listening to Looking Up with Don. This is the Looking Up with Don podcast, episode number 118, for the week of April 6, 2022. The related website for this podcast is donmacholz.com. That is spelled D-O-N-M-A-C-H-H-O-L-Z dot com. Two H's. What's up in the sky this week? As our week begins on Wednesday, April 6th, the moon will be about 25% full in the evening sky. This will be a crescent moon less than 4 degrees from the Crab Nebula, M1. We Messe marathoners have to be careful about the placement of the moon when we try to find all 110 Messe objects in one night. Each month it passes near the Crab Nebula, M1, and during the marathon season, which is late March and early April, when it does so, It's about 25% full. Now this might not seem like much, but it is enough to make it difficult or impossible to see M1. I tried that a couple of years ago with a 16-inch reflector and I, I could not see M1. The moon was about three degrees away. I could see where M1 was and I was looking at that spot. But the nebula was not visible to me, so I could not count it. Give it a try if you want. Look for M1 on the night of Wednesday, April 6. By next Tuesday, April 12, the moon will be 80% full in our evening sky, seen in the part of our sky where the constellation Leo is located. By the way, (laughs) then it is near the faint galaxies M95, M96, and M105. With the moon in our evening sky this week, we will be featuring a lunar landscape landmark later in this podcast. On Tuesday, April 12th, Jupiter passes north of the planet Neptune. The closest distance between the two is about seven arc minutes, about a tenth of a degree. Now, all of this is in the morning sky, about 29 degrees from the sun, so this part of the sky never gets very high above the horizon before morning twilight. Neptune is magnitude 8, and the only thing this bright that is south of Jupiter. On that morning, the moons of Jupiter will be east and west of the planet, while Neptune is south, and it will be several times fainter than Jupiter's moons. Go look for it. Looking at the big picture, where are we headed with all these planets in the morning sky? I mean, last week we had Saturn and Mars next to each other. This week it's Jupiter and Neptune. Well, by June 10th, in just two months, all of the major planets and even Pluto will be in our morning sky. At that time, we will do something that I suggested in these podcasts and actually did. See the planets in order, (laughs) then in reverse order. This is probably easiest on about June 18th, when Mercury is farthest from the sun. So we'll start with Mercury, then see Venus, then the Earth or something on Earth, and, and our moon will be up there too. Then on to Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and finally Neptune. Then we go back to Uranus and through the reverse list to Mercury. All major planets twice in 10 minutes. I'll discuss that again as we near mid June. The International Space Station is in orbit around the Earth at a height of about 240 miles which is about 420 kilometers. At that height, there is a very thin atmosphere, which takes the ISS down two or three miles. So every two to four weeks, it's given a boost, which takes it back up to 240 miles. The Russians are in charge of boosting it. Recently, the Russians have said they no longer want to be involved in working with the ISS as long as the sanctions are in place. Negotiations are underway. A possible backup plan would be that the SpaceX Corporation take over the chore of boosting the ISS. Presently, I understand the SpaceX Corporation has the capability to do this. Will you be able to see the International Space Station this week? which for our purposes begins Wednesday, April 6th through Tuesday, April 12th. It depends upon where you are located. This week we have six zones. All you need to know is your latitude. From 40 degrees north and north of that to the North Pole, no ISS this week. I've also used the word north three times in a sentence. Between 15 and 40 degrees north, the ISS will be in your evening sky for the first part of the week. Further south, between 20 degrees south and 15 degrees north, the ISS will be in your evening sky for at least part of the week. Now, some of you might also find it in your morning sky later in the week. Between 35 and 20 degrees south... The ISS will be in your morning sky for at least part of the week. Only one area will see the ISS in their sky for the whole week, and that is between 47 and 35 degrees south. It will be in your morning sky for the whole week. South of 47 degrees south, it will be in your morning sky for only a few days. To determine where the International Space Station will be in your sky, Go to to the website heavens-above.com and enter your location and click on ISS. After about six months of having many comets within the view of a small telescope, the number of comets we can now see has dwindled, as many of those comets have left the scene. They are plotted on Podcast 118, Maps 1 and 2, These maps are different than the ones in the past, by the way. I'll put the Milky Way in. But if you want more accurate positions for these comets, go to the heavens-above.com website and click on Comets. Comet 19b Borley is magnitude 11, but near the moon in the constellation Norega. Likewise, Comet Atlas 2019 L3 magnitude 10 is in Gemini, and it battles with the moonlight, too. But turning to the morning sky, we find comet 2017 K2, magnitude 10, in Aquila. The brightest comet in the sky is not visible right now. It is behind the sun and will emerge into our evening northern sky in about three weeks, maybe, maybe. <laughs> It is Comet c twenty twenty one O three 3 PANSTARS. Discovered last year by the PANSTARS system in Hawaii, this comet will be going very close to the sun on April 21st, closer than the planet Mercury. It is after that, about 10 days later, with that we hope to see it in our sky. Some comets going this close to the sun do not survive. Indications using something known as the Bordel Limit would be that this comet would more than likely disintegrate. The Bordel Limit, developed by American amateur comet expert John Bortle, the same guy who invented the Bordel scale for sky brightness, can give us a good idea, based upon the comet's intrinsic brightness and distance to the sun, as to whether a comet will survive its passage near the sun. This comet, 2021-03 Panstarrs does not seem to cut it. But you never know what you're going to get with a comet. And we will all be watching to see if it pops into our evening sky in the last few days of April. I'll keep you posted on this. I want to recommend you also listen to a podcast that does a real good job of explaining amateur astronomy, astronomy equipment, and what to see in the sky each week. It is called the Actual Astronomy Podcast, and Chris and Shane, the host, produce two shows per week. The Actual Astronomy Podcast has interviewed me twice, once on episode 204, then again last week on episode 210. So I suggest you listen to them and subscribe, the Actual Astronomy Podcast. On my podcast, podcast number 113, I was discussing viewing deep sky objects under suburban skies, and I said that for a while I comet hunted from San Jose, California, using a Barlow lens. I further stated that the Barlow lens doubled the magnification but did not quite have the field of view. I was wrong about that, as a Barlow lens will cut your field of view in half, assuming that you do not change eyepieces. What I'm thinking I did, and this was nearly 40 years ago now, (laughs) was to change the eyepiece from one with a 32 millimeter focal length When I added the Barlow, I put in a different eyepiece with a 46 millimeter focal length. Now, that still gave me more magnification than the 32 millimeter eyepiece alone, because now it's 46 divided by 2 for an effective focal length of 23 millimeters. But this particular longer focal length eyepiece also had a larger field lens. So the new field of view was larger than if I had just used a 32-millimeter eyepiece with the Barlow. This weekend is a good time to look at the moon and to spot the straight wall. It is a feature on the moon, and it's labeled on Podcast 118, Map 3. It stands out well just after the sun rises over this area, which for us will be this weekend. It is also known by the name rupus recta, which translates from Latin to straight cliff. It is one of the most interesting features on the moon. The straight wall runs through an unnamed crater and the wall is about 68 miles, which is 110 kilometers long. Think about that for a minute. That's a long distance, 68 miles. Here's the odd thing. We see it as a cliff or a wall, (laughs) but it's more like a gradual slope of about 10 degrees. You could walk up that. The width of the wall is about 1.4 to 2 miles wide. That's 2 to 3 kilometers wide. And it's only about 800 to 1,000 feet high, which is 240 to 300 meters high. So crank up the magnification and examine the straight wall. And, you know, it's not straight. There are some kinks in it. Now the side where the shadow is located is lower than the other side by about 800 to 1,000 feet. Imagine that. Last week, I asked if you knew which of the 110 Messe objects is the youngest object. Have you thought about that this past week? I actually discussed this object earlier in the podcast. The answer is the Crab Nebula, M1. It is a supernova remnant of dust and gas from a star that we saw explode in the year 1054. The Crab Nebula is about 6,500 light years away from us, meaning it took the light 6,500 years to reach us. So the nebula was formed only 7,460 years ago. John Beavis first spotted this nebula in 1731, and Charles Messier found it while looking for the return of Halley's Comet on September 12, 1758. At first, he thought he had found the returning comet, but when it did not move in relation to the stars, he knew it was not a comet. From this experience, Messier decided to compile a catalog of fixed objects. So since the supernova explosion, the material has been expanding at half the speed of light. The more it expands, the bigger it gets but the more difficult it will be to see as the surface brightness decreases. In a few centuries, and I'm thinking in somewhat more than a thousand years from now, it will fade into the background when visually seen through a small or even moderate-sized telescope. So, M1 is the youngest Messe object forming only 7,460 years ago the light reaching us as a point source 968 years ago, and it will be the first Messe object to disappear. Now for fun with a marathon. On March 29th, 30th, just last week, I started my 69th Messe marathon, an attempt to see in one night all or nearly all of the 110 galaxies, clusters, and nebula cataloged by Charles Messier over 200 years ago. This time, I use my 16-inch Dobsonian telescope. Now, this is a telescope I seldom use. <laughs> this telescope seems to be a bit difficult to move when aimed high in the sky, and I, I know that this is common for Dobsonian mounts. My 18-inch telescope is also Dobsonian-mounted. But guess what? When I use that for comet hunting, I'm never using it high in the sky, only near the horizon where it's easy to move. Anyway, uh, from here in Stargazer, Arizona, I missed M74 because it was too faint to be seen due to twilight, zodiacal light, and low altitude. I had the area in my eyepiece field of view, but I could not see it, so I could not count it. In my first 90 minutes, I saw 70 of the 110 Messe objects, everything that was above the horizon up to that point. Then I went to bed, getting up at 3.30 and finishing the remainder of the objects, finding the last one, M30 at 5.04. So my total count was 109 of the 110 Messe objects. Now that's the 23rd time I've seen 109 objects in one night. This was the 54th Messe marathon that I've been able to complete since 1979. The other 15 being clouded out before the morning session. And again, I found them all from memory, something I've been doing since 2003. It's easier to find them from memory than dealing with star charts at the telescope. Last December 3rd and 4th, I did the Messe Marathon using digital setting circles. The First time I've ever used those for the Messe Marathon. And I found that easier <laughs> than even doing it from memory. And I know this is how more than half of you are doing the Messe Marathon these days with digital setting circles. To recap the podcast, what's up this coming week? See Jupiter and Neptune in the morning sky on Tuesday, April 12th. See the straight wall on the moon. And listen to the actual astronomy podcast. You have been listening to Looking Up with Don, podcast episode number 118 for April 6, 2022. I'm Don Mockholtz. Once again, the related website for this podcast is donmacholtz.com. That is spelled D-O-N-M-A-C-H-H-O-L-Z.com. Two H's. You can contact me at dontheastronomer at gmail.com. Once again, that is dontheastronomer at gmail.com. God willing and pod willing, I'll be back next week for another episode of Looking Up with Dawn. More planets are bunching up in the morning sky, and we will be seeing the full moon. All that and more. Thank you for listening. See the sky this week. I'll see you next week.